Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors episode 185. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Please visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. December's prize is a copy of my new book, The Final Year of Anne Boleyn, and a Tudor-themed Christmas decoration. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about Tudor Christmas food and traditions is Brigitte Webster. Brigitte has devoted decades into the study of historic food, gardens, and early furniture, and runs Tudor and 17th century experiences at her beautiful 16th century house in Norwich. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
Welcome back to Talking Tudors, Brigitte. How are you? Well, thank you very much for having me. It's always such a pleasure. Well, it has been a little while since we last spoke, so would you mind just introducing yourself again to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background? Yeah, of course. Well, in a nutshell, I am somebody who is living a cuter life in the 21st century with uh, the skill set of your typical Tudor middling class lady and uh, with the purchase of a small Tudor manor here in Norwich three years ago, I now have an authentic stage to put the theory into practical experiments. And uh, I mostly focus on Tudor cookery, but that also extends into running a kitchen garden, a herb garden, and an orchard to supply me with sometimes hard to get hold of vegetable and fruit. That's absolutely fantastic. And your house is stunning. I love what looking at your social media posts of your beautiful, beautiful house. So we're here to talk about Christmas traditions and Christmas in Tudor times, which was very exciting. So I thought perhaps if you could tell us a little bit about Advent in Tudor times, kind of like what were people permitted to do? What were they permitted to eat? What did they have to abstain from? Those kinds of things. Well, before the Reformation, Advent was culinary, um, a very meager, meager affair as the 40 days of St. Martin, as it was also known, was basically a period of very strict fasting that lasted right up to Christmas Day and included Christmas Eve on the 24th. So the fasting diet for the affluent and the nobility was restricted to soups, stews and fish instead of roasts and pies. Now, Advent fasting basically meant, therefore, no meat, no animal-based fat, no cheese, no milk, no eggs. The affluent class, however, replaced some of these with expensive imported non-dairy alternatives, such as almond milk or olive oil. And to have fresh luxury fish, such as sturgeon served up, was not much of a sacrifice either. And yet it was often these privileged that cheated by ignoring these dietary rules imposed by the church. And there's a 14th century quote where some someone is basically complaining to having to eat no puddings, no, no sauce, but stinking fish not worth a louse. When you look at the poor, however, they fared rather worse as the reduction of food at this time of the year, when they were already fighting the cold and hunger, was a matter of sheer survival already. And to have the church impose further restrictions on that diet of all its devout members was just more than cruel. Anybody who could not afford the 
expensive fasting alternatives was indeed left to eat nothing but vegetables, walnuts, hazelnuts, apples, perhaps pears, for weeks on end. And Martin Luther in Germany had been watching this torture set purely on religious grounds, and he actively started to encourage his followers to abandon these dietary restrictions and to eat whatever people wanted or could indeed get hold of. And I think, well, perhaps you might agree, that this would have been one very convincing and tempting selling point for the lower class to convert. Absolutely, because I think sometimes we forget that, of course, in the cold, especially when you live in countries that are much warmer, but in the cold you do require a lot more calories, don't you, in order to, to keep the body working properly. Exactly. Wonderful. All right. So, Brigitte, obviously a lot of people are thinking about decorating their homes at the moment for the festive season. So how did people in Tudor times actually decorate their homes during this period? From the late medieval age, urban church accounts offered the first written evidence of the use of holly and ivy as decorations at Christmas time. For example, at the Church of St. Mary on the Hill in Chester, records show that in the 1540s, holly was suspended from a line stuck with candles. And during the same decade at the Port of Rhine, Sussex, holly twigs were wound up a broom and also had candles placed among them. And John Stowe, writing his famous survey of London in 1598, tells the reader that against the feast of Christmas, every man's house and also parish churches were decked with holm, ivy, base, and in his own words, whatever the season of the year afforded to be green. Well, however, there is, interestingly, no written record, as far as I know, that mentions mistletoe as Christmas decoration in Tudor times, which is probably quite different to what we think today. But um, interestingly, Protestant reformers regarded the decking with greens as a trivial and payments for Christmas foliage do disappear from most accounts during the time of Edward VI. But under Elizabeth, the tradition undergoes a new sort of revival, probably because the population was soundly converted and popish customs like greenery decoration didn't pose a danger anymore. And so I think it's lovely to add that little touch of Tudor Christmas decoration to your house because it's so easy. Go out in the garden, pick a little bit of ivy and holly, and there you go. Done. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And is that how you decorate your house? 
Well, yes, I do. I do. Uh, I'm lucky that I have a garden and uh, which supplies me of both. And this year I was going to do and keep it just Tudor, but my husband cheated and he, unknown to me, <laughs> put up some lights and a Christmas tree in the lounge. But hey, I'm sure we can combine the both. Exactly. You have to negotiate. And it's good that yeah. you mentioned the Christmas tree because I did want to ask you about that. When do Christmas trees, as we know them, first make an appearance in England? Well, the Christmas tree is actually a really very late arrival to England and started with Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, who brought this tradition with him from Germany, where it was a tradition for a little bit longer, but certainly not dating back to the 16th century. So the Tudors, wherever people in Europe were in the 16th century, did not have a Christmas tree, but they did have greenery. Well, thank you for clarifying. And in terms of the 12 days of Christmas, how is that celebrated at the Tudor court? Uh, the celebrations and the festive food were only permitted from Christmas Day onwards and lasted for 12 days, known as Christmas Tide. The Christmas Day at court was clearly a day of merrymaking involving dance, music, card play, masks, and was also an occasion for eating high-value meats and other luxurious foods, which served the test of time, as well as the influence of the Reformation. And Christmas Tide was also an occasion of generosity. Now, members of the court and the wealthy, mostly obviously entertained those social equals, such as neighbours and friends, if possible, chose to do so at their country seat. However, as landlords, they were obliged to throw a feast or a little party for all their farmer tenants. We can assume, though, <laughs> that some conveniently forgot about that duty and needed to be reminded, as Thomas Tusser does in his publication of A Hundredth Good Points of Husbandry in 1557, when he says, at Christmas we banked the rich with the poor, who then but the miser openeth his door. Now, this tradition was not the charitable occasion as it might appear at first glance, as each guest was expected to bring gifts, mostly farm produce. So eggs, apples, pears, cheese, capons feature frequently in the accounts of aristocrats and they are being given by the members of the public, servants and tenants. So what about food and drink? You mentioned that this is a time to eat some really some really fancy kind of food and drink at the court. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, of course. Now, at the court at Christmas, venison was the preferred meat of all the nobility and its members. And it remained a high status food. It was, in fact, the only meat that, in theory, could not be purchased. Venison could only be gifted by people who had their own hunting ground, which was known as a forest. And conveniently, again, Christmas fell right into the hunting season. And so venison was a popular choice because it provided your guests with food and the fun of a hunt. Venison was most often served roasted or served in a pie. And Tudor physician and former monk Thomas Board esteemed venison as the gentleman's food in 1542. And he felt quite strongly that there nowhere in the world was venison as esteemed as in England. Now, the much praised and known boar's head at Christmas is actually mostly associated with Queen's College in Oxford, where it has been served since 1341. A boar's head is a true status symbol, and we do know that Henry VIII was sent a Christmas gift of wild boar pâté by the French king. One of my favourites that was served then is an extremely popular dish made of wheat by the name of frumenti. It was boiled in milk or ale uh, and spiced with eggs, fruit, spices and sometimes sugar, cream or almond milk. <laughs> what I find interesting to note is that some meat, for instance, chicken and rabbit were subject to price hiking in the run-up to Christmas before dipping right down below average during Lent. So very much a supply and demand problem there. We also do have evidence that sausage started to become more popular with the gentry at Christmas as several household accounts between 15 and 1600 reveal. Towards the end of the 16th century, we witness some growing interest in serving up more elite vegetables amongst the nobility, such as turnip. But you might ask, what about Brussels sprouts? Well, although there were first recorded in 1587 in Europe, they were most unlikely served at the tables of the English during the reign of the Tudors. But plum porridge, or later referred to as plum pudding, was a thick broth of mutton or beef with plums, bread, spices, dried fruit, and wine. Only during Elizabeth's time, flour started to be added, which makes it firmer and less of a stew texture, before eventually all meat ingredients had been removed by the 18th century. 
and it starts becoming more what we associate with plum pudding today. Now, talking about pudding, we can't forget about the figgy pudding, which was a kind of sweet dish made from almonds, wine, figs, raisins, ginger, and honey. Strong in flavor, this dish is actually really, really delicious and one of my favorites. And of course, at the end of all feasting, there would have been the all-praised and lavish banquet, the Tudor dessert course. And it contained sweetmeats and diverse canapes like suckets, comfits, marchpane, sweetbreads and biscuits. And talking about drinks at Christmas time, I think we do need to mention lamb's wool, which was also known as wassail, which is basically a hot spiced apple or ale-based drink that was traditionally served in a wassail bowl with floating roasted crab apple pieces on top. And are you making any of these recipes, Brigitte, for your Christmas this year? Oh, you bet, yes. <laughs> I <laughs> thought you might. Like <laughs> everybody. No, it's really nice and easy to make, actually. Yeah. Fabulous. And and so these days, a lot of people, of course, associate Christmas with turkey and mince pies. What about those? Did they make an appearance in the 16th century? Hmm. Now, I, I love this question because turkey always comes up and it's one of my favourite things to talk about. Turkey started to appear in England during the 16th century. And the earliest record is all about six birds imported and sold at Bristol for two pence in 1526. The arrival of this new exotic bird started to take the nobility by storm and it was being sold at markets by the 1540s but only towards the end of Elizabeth's reign can we actually see them appear in household accounts at Christmas. Before then we see more goose, capon, pheasant and other poultry except for perhaps duck. And the famed peacock was more a, a medieval culinary highlight. And the Tudors really seemed to have gone off it. But stuffing was known as forced meat and contained eggs, currants, pork, herbs, and was recorded in 1538 for the first time. Now, mince pies, oh, I love to the mince pies, oh, were as popular at Christmas then as they are now. But in Tudor times, they contained a lot of lamb or veal. That only started to disappear slowly during the 18th century. The Twelfth Night Cake was a kind of sweet bread which spices and dried fruit, but sadly not a single recipe has survived from the 1500s. So those are the two that uh, I think make Christmas great then and still do. 
And what about ordinary men and women? What did they have to eat for, for Christmas dinner? Yeah, no, that is my pet interested uh, interest, I have to say. But it is considerably more difficult to find out what exactly the poor ate at Christmas, as only few people felt the need to record this then. And even fewer sources survive to tell us now. But we can make some educated guesses from studying what was available at this time. And brawn was basically the Christmas dish available to most people of all classes. And Andrew Bort, the physician in Henry VIII's time, he calls it the usual meat in winter amongst Englishmen. In Tudor England, brawn was fairly salty pork, but in Henry VII's time, brawn was more likely to be wild boar. Brawn could also be served in any vegetable-based stew, catering for more people and therefore stretching it further. People would have also had a kind of fermenty to go with their brawn, but clearly without the expensive extras added such spices and imported fruit. Uh, and they more likely added pepper, perhaps some kind of uh, fat, animal fat to give it more flavour. But the lower classes would have been definitely unable to f- afford any ingredients for March pain or anything made up from sugar at Christmas. But apple pies and tarts made with pear, quince or medlars would have been a real Christmas treat for people even lower down the scale. And what about some of the other popular traditions associated with this period? I know there's lots of sort of different ones, but perhaps you can tell us about a couple of those. Yeah, this period obviously is exceptionally rich in all sorts of traditions, most now lost to us, like the boy bishop on December the 6th, where, for example, a boy of the choir was selected to be bishop for one day. But this was already banned by Henry in 1542. Now, I am particularly interested in all traditions involving food. And so we have, for example, the bean cake, which appears to have been a kind of gingerbread, which was made from honey and breadcrumbs. And inside this cake was either a coin or a bean, sometimes also a pea. And the couple who received the slice containing either were then made king and queen of the bean and led the singing, dancing and merrymaking. The other one we have already slightly touched upon is the wassailing. Now that was both a drink and a tradition which involved the blessings of fruit trees in the orchard by farmers and their communities. Wassailing was celebrated on Twelfth Night and was first described in 1320. 
Wassail means good health in Old English, and a bowl holding the wassail drink would be passed around, crying wassail, and each recipient would drink and pass it on, saying drink hal. At the end, this drink would then have been poured over the roots of various fruit trees in the orchard, and in hope that ensured a good harvest for the next year. We did it last year, and it sure did the trick. We had loads of apples. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. I love that. I love how um, how much merrymaking there was during the, the 12 days of Christmas. It sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? And one other question for you, Brigitte, about exchanging gifts, because, of course, now – most people will do this on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, but it was not the case in the Tudor time. So can you tell us about this whole exchange of gifts? Yeah, I'd love to. Now, the great gift exchange, as I call it, happened on New Year's Day. And perhaps not quite so surprising either is that food was always a welcome and very prized gift item. It was given between families, communities, companies, guilds, and of course, also within aristocratic circles and royalty. Uh, we actually know a lot about what gifts the king and the queen received and from whom, as every single item was carefully recorded every single year. Now, this was necessary as every giver received something in return. Servants were usually rewarded with money, and members of the court with an object in keeping with their status. What I find quite funny is that gifts received, which did not quite hit the right mark or expectations, were quickly reassigned as a present for somebody else. <laughs> yeah, I love that too. And, and and I do like how it's sort of similar to what happens today, perhaps if you receive a gift yeah, that, yeah, that, that you're not too keen on, you may save it for the next Christmas <laughs> to give away. Um, now, I need to ask you about your new book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, my new book called Eating with the Tudors is coming out next year in 2023 probably by the summer but you know fingers crossed it is basically a book that tells you all about the Tudors their food their recipes and it's also meant to entice you to actually trying out the recipes there are just under a hundred Tudor recipes in their original, with my modern translation, and each recipe gives you a little bit of historic insight, what makes it special, who happened to eat the same or was given the same. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, I hope, uh, something that lots of Tudor fans will be interested in buying. <laughs> 
That sounds fantastic. I will definitely be adding that to my list and trying out some of those recipes. Sounds like a lot of fun. And now the last thing, Brigitte, that I ask all my guests is for a Tudor takeaway. So this is something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. Sometimes people suggest a book, a film to watch, a song to listen to. Do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? Yes. I thought long and hard about it. And then I thought, I will treat your listeners to a recipe of lamb's wool. So on 12th night, they can go out in their garden and bless their fruit trees. And with the recipe, it's also a little bit more in-depth information about its history, its origin. So, yeah, I'm hoping that they will enjoy that. Thank you so much, Brigitte. And thank you. I hope you have an absolutely wonderful holiday season. And I can't wait to see pics of your house dressed um, in Tudor style for Christmas. <laughs> and thank you so much for coming back onto the podcast and sharing your expertise and passion with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music